Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. I am joined by my fellow Seven Investing lead advisor today, Max Chatsko. How are you doing, Max? I'm on mute. I'm doing well. Matt, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, listeners, today we are very excited to introduce Perth Toll, the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. It's the home of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF, ticker FRDM, a first-of-its-kind strategy that uses personal and economic freedom metrics as primary factors in its investment process for investing in emerging markets. Perth was a private wealth advisor at Fidelity Investments in Los Angeles and Houston, uh, prior to founding the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index. And prior to that, she lived and worked in Beijing and Hong Kong, where her observations led her to explore the relationship between freedom and the markets. Perth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, we're very excited to have you. Uh, Perth, so there are 7,602 ETFs listed in the US. I looked that up right before the show. Uh, <laughs> So how does your ETF, the FRDM, the Freedom ETF, differ from other emerging market ETFs? Yeah, so most emerging markets ETFs, and, and let's just back up even from there, there's you know three classifications for international stocks, developed market, emerging market, and frontier market. So we're operating in the emerging market space, which are you know what you think of as um, like China, Russia, India, Brazil, you're kind of uh, uh, countries that are considered somewhat um, still developing. So the developed markets are all pretty free, pretty homogenous. Um, emerging markets are full of autocracies and semi-autocracies. And so um, most indexes, of course, and most strategies are benchmarked to a market cap weighted um, index. And so market cap weighting leads to a huge allocation to autocracies in the emerging market space. So most emerging market funds out there will have 40 plus percent in the world's worst dictatorships. Um, and 35% of that is in China alone. So it's got China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Turkey. Um, the first three of those are in the top 10 holdings of most country holdings of most emerging markets funds. And 35% is currently in China alone. At, at the height of inclusion, um, China was between 40 and 45% of most emerging markets funds. That was in August of 2020 last year. Um, so that's a huge concentration risk to, you know, very risky um, places. Most people that, you know, are scared to invest in emerging markets are, uh, are, are scared to invest there because of the lack of transparency, the rampant corruption, um, the, you know, murky ownership uh, kind of uh, disclosures and murky accounting standards. And if you invest in some of these more unfree markets without rule of law, without shareholder rights, um, where people that are investing there from, you know, the foreign investors are not going to have a lot of uh, value capture from doing that. And, and I think uh, Matt has a cool chart that kind of shows this. Uh, he could bring it up at some point as well. Um, so, so when you do invest in the, the most unfree markets and concentrate your risk there, it drags down your entire emerging markets kind of uh, performance. And um, we, we believe that the freer markets have much better value capture. So 
Okay, so I don't know why this 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 uh, MSCI is a little jagged here, but but you get the point. Uh, yeah. Oh no, that's GDP. Okay, so GDP is a, actually should be more straight than that, but I don't know what's going on with this particular illustration. But um, but you get the point. China's GDP over the last forty years increased dramatically and very consistently, um, and whether it's depicted this way or in a straight line, it's you know you get the same idea. But the MSCI China index, which is both onshore and offshore shares, in that time has captured like 2.2% per year annual return, which is worse than treasuries. So this is a perfect illustration of when, when you're investing in an unfree market without personal and economic freedoms, including shareholder rights, rule of law, private property rights, things like that, uh, you just can't capture value even if it's there. And if it's not there, then it's an even worse situation. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to capture um, value in the freest emerging markets. We believe that those are the places um, that will be the launch pads for growth in the coming decades. So that's where we want to be. And we're freedom weighted instead of market cap weighted. So we can kind of capture that value. And so to your point, Perth, like this isn't just ESG dressing to make uh, Western investors like feel a little bit better about themselves. I mean, this is like, for those listening on the podcast and, and not watching on YouTube, like we're showing a chart, like China's GDP growth since the early 90s is up like 2,500%, while the MSCI China index is only up total in that time, it's only up 87%. So this, I mean, these these freedom metrics, I mean, these, these affect shareholder returns. Absolutely. And we've seen that, especially this year. Um, with the parade of actions uh, of gov government interference in China that we've seen affect shareholder returns very drastically. And that's why their market kind of has collapsed this year. And that's all due to economic freedom factors like government intervention and private markets. And you didn't know you're going to show this, but like also, I mean, like also to your to that same point, like your 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 ETF, the, the Freedom 100 has outperformed like the total emerging market index since inception by by 10 percentage points. I mean, that's not that's not peanuts, you know, for, you know, in a last, let's say, two years or a little over two years. You know, that's a that's a pretty big uh, outperformance from your ETF. So this does I mean, this really does affect shareholder returns. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that's that's the idea. Um, we're not promising the same outperformance all the time. Um, but yeah, it's certainly worked out um, in recent past. So how do you calculate these human and economic freedom scores? Yeah, so our uh, freedom scores come from third-party think tank partners. So we work with the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. Now, um, they're completely independent from us and we're completely independent from them. So I don't affect the scores in any way. Um, they basically compile 76 variables um, from 100... 100 network think tanks around the world, um, both personal and economic freedoms. So things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, women's rights, those would be like civil freedoms and then political freedoms like uh, civil procedure, criminal procedure, uh, freedom of speech, media, expression, religion, assembly, internet. So all of those types of uh, kind of political freedoms and then the economic freedoms that we're all familiar with, you know, like government intervention in private markets, um, private property rights, rule of law, um, taxation, business regulations, freedom to trade internationally, um, soundness of monetary policy and so forth. So all of those 76 variables added together um, gives us a composite score for each country. They do score 162 countries, 
Um, we only use the emerging markets universe, which is about 26 countries currently. Um, and we look at the, uh, the absolute scores. So we're not looking at the possible change in the scores. So we're not looking at like, okay, what's the potential trajectory of Venezuela? Because the bottom countries will always, always have the biggest potential to change um, for the better. So that's not what we're trying to capture. We're trying to capture the absolute score, who is the freest right now among their peers. So it's the absolute score relative to their peers. So if you're one of the freer markets, then you end up being included in the index. So we turn those kind of um, scores into country weights based on the level of the score. Yeah, once you find these countries and you have the ranking, the relative ranking, uh, how do you identify what companies to include in the ETF? Yeah, so with the com- this is mostly a top-down approach where we're, you know, most the, the biggest innovation is the freedom weighting on the country level. And the reason why we do country level for that is because governments are best positioned to protect freedoms, not individual companies themselves. So we do that country level ranking and then the country level weighting and inclusions. um, And then those weights don't change. And then we go down to the security level and we're just trying to capture a good representation of the market in each of those countries um, without changing the country weight. So we market cap weight securities within their country weights. Um, and exclude state-owned enterprises. We only include right now the top 10 largest, most liquid companies um, in each country, excluding state-owned enterprises. That's just to bring the economic freedom theme all the way through. Now, the fund is getting bigger. So in the future, we may add you know, some companies per country. It's not al- always going to be probably just 10. Um, that was just to get you know, the, fun- the fund started. And I think that was a good capture, um, but we wouldn't mind possibly in the future adding more depth to it. Okay. So, so Perth, like I, I think this this stat might be a little outdated, but I, I saw something where like emerging markets are uh, like eighty five percent of the global population, fifty percent of GDP, and only fifteen percent though of total like global market cap. So, are you do U.S. investors like ignore emerging markets too much in their portfolios? I think investors in general tend to have a home country bias, and especially in the U.S., where our market has done so well, um, that's you know very easy to do. And people say, well, you know, all of our companies are you know multinationals, and they operate in all these other countries, so we don't need that additional direct exposure. Um, so I think there's a lot of that uh, home country bias. I, I disagree with that. Um, I think that that every investor should have some allocation to emerging markets. You know, I come from Fidelity uh, where I was a financial advisor for 10 years before starting this company. And we, you know, Fidelity always had um, an allocation to emerging markets. So allocators will always have an emerging markets allocation. Um, And that's just for diversification. Um, Right now, especially emerging markets are so um, favorably valued compared to developed markets and especially compared to US, just because US is so high um, that right now is a really good time for that diversification. So um, so yeah, I would encourage investors to look beyond their home markets um, for growth. Um, like you said, you know, these are the markets that are going to be contributing the most to world growth going forward. And they are very, um, th- their, their valuations are very low right now compared to developed and US and just they're coming from a low base in general. And so that's the highest potential for growth. So that's where, that's where we wanna be, but we don't wanna be in, in countries where companies have to put state interest first, like in China, um, as we've seen this year, there's a cost to doing business like that. 
and uh, we're not willing to take that risk and, and, and subsidize that cost for these companies. So we would rather be in countries where companies are free to act in their own and the shareholders' best interests instead of having to put state interests first. So that's key, I think, in emerging markets investing. One of the countries that makes it the cut in the, uh, the Freedom Index is Chile, and they have a very important presidential election. It's pretty uh, widely contested. Um, it could go in, in like two different extremes almost, I guess. Um, so does that have the potential to impact uh, that country's ranking, the relative ranking among its peers? Yeah, so elections typically um, don't impact a country's ranking immediately, but the policies that change after elections will eventually impact the company's ranking and it will eventually impact their market. So a good example of what happened uh, in a case like this is Poland, like four or five years ago, elected the PIS government and they got constitutional majority. Um, I was at a meeting with our freedom econometricians and the Poland guy told me, hey, this guy's gonna get elected and they're gonna get constitutional majority. Um, things are going to be kind of crazy. They're going to lose a lot of freedoms. Like uh, this freedom score is probably going to decline, like in women's freedoms, in judicial independence, things like that. Um, but it won't affect the markets until a couple of years after that. And I was like, okay. So it happened just as he said. Poland was still the best performing emerging market in, um, this was, I believe, uh, 2017. And then 2018, they dropped in the rankings and they dropped in our index as a result from number one to number four. And they've stayed there since. And they've never been the best performing market again since that time. Um, so, yeah, it, it will probably, depending on, and this is a, yeah, widely contested, um, seems like very far, uh, far left and very far, I don't know if it's very far right, but it's definitely right and very far left. Um, two candidates that are, you know, head to head and people are um, very passionate about what's going on there. Um, so, so I think Chile is a country in, in South America that has kind of led the way in freedom, especially economic freedom. Um, but as a result, they're, they're also, there's always, it always comes in waves and they're, they're kind of in um, a time where they may be reverting to the South American mean, which is a less free type of, uh, you know, government governance as a whole. Um, and so that is a, a risk and a danger there that we're, we're watching. Um, once that, once those policies come into place and affect scores, then yeah, that will affect um, their weightings in our, in our index as well. And when, when people think of emerging markets, I think often they think of the BRIC nations, right? It's kind of maybe an outdated term now, but you, you mentioned those at the, the top uh, of your intro there. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people think of obviously of China, Mm -hmm. uh, but how does China rank in these these freedom scores and the freedom index? Because it's it's not part of the uh, the ETF. Yeah, it's it's very low. So um, out of the emerging markets, it's one of the worst, uh, along with Russia, Saudi Arabia. Um, in some measures, so there's 76 measures, right? But in some measures, like um, press freedom, they're the worst in the world. Like only Syria, Iran, North Korea are worse. So um, it's, it's very poor, um, but they, they had an increase in economic freedom over the past 30 to 40 years because they uh, went from abysmal policies under Mao where tons of millions of people died in famine um, to like not so bad policies. And that created this, the conditions for people to lift themselves up out of poverty. And, and they did that in spectacular fashion and China grew as we saw on that chart. Uh, again, you know, we didn't capture that as foreign investors in, in their stock market, but 
China grew in that a lot, and that is you know undeniable. So they did have that period of increasing economic freedom, but now even that economic freedom is 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 going the other direction. So the pendulum is swinging the other way really fast. Um, so right now, you know, for China, I don't see an inclusion happening uh, anytime soon, just because of the trajectory. Uh, but I would love to have them in the index, you know, uh, you know, from there, and uh, you know. If they were in the index, that, that would that would mean they become more free. Uh, we're not excluding them arbitrarily or any other country. It's all a natural result of the freedom waiting. And when you when you exclude a company, a uh, country like China, I mean, they obviously have some like of the the bigger tech companies in the world, like Alibaba, Tencent, mm -hmm. uh, JD.com. You know, those are companies that are even familiar with U.S. investors. Mm -hmm. uh, when you eliminate a country like that. Can you still have like sector diversity in an emerging market fund? Like I know there's a lot of like financials and, and commodity, you know, energy companies in emerging markets. Can you still have like, do you still have room for, for tech and other, other sectors of the economy? Yeah, actually, great question. Tech is our biggest sector. Uh, and that's because our biggest holdings are in Taiwan and South Korea, like Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung. So you know, leading the world in, uh, in chip technology, uh, which is actually contributing to um, some of the solutions that we need right now in, in, our, in our supply chains. Um, so, so yeah, these are companies that are countries and companies that are leading the charge in technology much more so, especially when we talk about semiconductors, they're like five years ahead at least of China. So, and China's trying to catch up now and they're, they're committing a lot of resources to that. Um, so, so that, that is something that, you know, uh, thankfully we didn't lose uh, because of the freedom waiting. And yes, China, um, you know, company, companies like Tencent, Alibaba, um, those do make up a lot of, of the top 10 holdings of most emerging markets funds. And in fact, most emerging markets funds have like top five or six holdings are Chinese companies. Um, those companies plus, you know, state banks and such. But um, but yeah, that's that's something that you know you, you don't have to miss out on by investing in the freer countries. You, you talked about the uh, you know the pendulum for China's economic freedom kind of swinging in the wrong direction maybe recently. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we saw like the big public example of you know Didi getting delisted, just had a uh, or it's going to withdraw its you know from the uh, New York Stock Exchange, and it just mm -hmm. listed you know six months ago. Uh, but then we saw maybe, yeah, there were some rumors about China's regulatory body saying, well, maybe we're going to prohibit um, Chinese companies from listing with variable uh, interest entities, which is the primary way they list internationally, you know, on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, they kind of walked that back a little bit recently, I think. But um, then we've also seen the SEC, you know, come up with this mechanism by which to possibly delist companies that aren't uh, adhering to the right financial controls like audits. Um, so do you see this continuing divergence in, you know, the Chinese market, the Chinese stock exchange and or stock exchanges, I should say, like Hong Kong uh, and, and those in like international markets like the U.S.? Yeah, I do. Um, and that's an interesting situation because, yeah, there are a lot of voices in the U.S. that have called out for um, delisting Chinese companies off of U.S. exchanges because, you know, they weren't being transparent. They weren't, weren't sharing their books. Uh, but it's not the companies that, that weren't sharing the books, it's, it's the government in China that didn't allow it because, you know, those books were considered state secret. And that is now what's happening to the tech companies is their data is considered state secret. There's a new data security law. Um, so anything in 
China that's like a state, uh, you know, sanctioned, like state secret stuff is always called security, like national security law, data security law, right? Um, so, so those, um, the data that are owned by Didi um, and these other companies are uh, something that they want to keep within the country. And there was a, there was a, a interesting blog post. I don't know if, I don't know if this is very well known, but there was a blog post on a, I don't even know the name of the blog um, about how there was a hack in the US and um, they somehow traced it back to China through the, uh, the Uber receipts of a government official that kept going from the government office to this one hacker's apartment. So it's just like back and forth, office apartment, office apartment. And from that, that's how they traced it back to China. <laughs> so, you know, that's one example of how uh, data could be, you know, something the government wants to keep under wraps, you know, customer receipts and things like that. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, uh, and, and China is at this time, what they need is to become more transparent, but what they're doing is the complete opposite. So they're going in that direct direction and I would expect that to continue. So whether it's the US calling for a delisting or China calling for a delisting, I think a delisting is um, happening. And it's also the worst case scenario for investors um, because when a company like Didi, when it delists, it doesn't even have a chance to recover. So, you know, we saw the education companies basically go flat to zero after they um, had to become nonprofits, basically by government decree overnight. Very profitable companies, by the way. Um, and then just became like, uh, I actually have this chart, maybe I'll, I can uh, bring it up later. But, uh, but that is a situation that's pretty much I thought was the worst case scenario. But then if they actually have to delist, there's no chance for recovery. And so that's that's the actual worst case scenario, I think. And uh, and it's basically happening. So so yeah, I think there is that that risk there now, um, in addition to all the other risks um, in investing in Chinese stocks now. Now for funds, some funds can just, like if, a, if the, these bigger names will also be cross-listed somewhere else, uh, like in Hong Kong. So those funds will just have to do paperwork to, to change the, the listing, but... Um, so for funds, it shouldn't be a problem, but for individual investors in individual stocks, that's something that is worrying. Yeah. And so not, I'm far from an expert on this, but like when, when a company delists, right? Like, so it'd be like a Chinese company traded on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. If you're, if you're not familiar with this and you're listening, like when you, when a company, when you delist from those exchanges, you lose that access to that, like that broad pool of buyers and sellers. So you lose a lot of liquidity in the stock. Mm -hmm. You lose a lot of those protections, like regulatory protections, like those stock exchanges provide to U.S. investors, you know, and, and it can still trade on over the counter, but you just lose so much liquidity in and protection that those stock exchanges provide. Uh, so it is, I mean, it is a, a real risk for U.S. investors. And right now it looks like it's happening from both sides, like from China and the U.S., like it's almost like there's pressure. Yeah. It is interesting. Well, yeah, we, we talk about this from, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm good. <laughs> um, you know, we talk about this from like the perspective of Chinese companies, but I always wonder too, like there's got to be risks for uh, international companies, like U.S. companies operating in China too. I mean, are there risks that China can just abruptly, you know, make a decision and maybe cut off bigger American companies from the Chinese market? I, I kind of brought this up on Twitter the other day. This is not my area. Matt knows a lot more about big tech than I do. Um, but, you know, like Apple generates like 19% of its total revenue in China. It's almost as big as Europe as far as a contributor to its business. 
Um, that's a lot of the source of the company's growth. That's why now it's Apple, you know, so I think they could survive, but that might change Apple's valuation a little bit. If, you know, worst case scenario, they were cut off from uh, the Chinese market. Tesla as well is obviously very dependent on the Chinese market for both revenue and, you know, production of autos. Um, so do you see any other risk from like going the other direction? Yeah, absolutely. Companies operating in China um, run huge risks and, uh, you know, anything from personnel disappearances, you know, to um, just completely cutting off market access. So that can happen anytime. Um, it's not something that's predictable. It's a very capricious um, type of government actions that's been going on. Um, so it's like a, almost like an autocracy risk, like a capriciousness risk. Um, so yeah, it, there's absolutely that risk. And that's, I think, why we see these kind of Wall Street titans and also Elon Musk and also, um, you know, the, the Tim Cook uh, having to be very careful what they say and do. And, you know, if you're operating in China, you're already kind of subject to the Chinese government um, in, in, in an indirect way. Uh, now, we think trade is good. We think, you know, we, we have, we actually give, you know, trade uh, is a positive score. Um, so, so we do uh, want more trade. Um, and then some of that trade is going to be with China and, and we're okay with that. Um, the difference is, do you have, you know, are you, is your company going to, like, is your company completely under the control of the Chinese government? And I think for, for Apple, for Tesla, it's not completely. In other words, they can still operate and, and they can choose to leave China. Those two companies specifically are a little more tied than others. <laughs> so, you know, we don't have those companies in our index because they're U.S. companies and we are only emerging markets. But as an example, those are, you know, companies that, that have somewhat of an indirect relationship where they have to answer to China in some ways. Uh, and we saw this with the revelation a couple of days ago with Apple making an interesting deal with China um, a few years back that no one knew about. Where, you know, and, and we've seen some weird things like during the, the Hong Kong protests, um, like certain uh, apps disappeared from, from the Apple store that were helping the protesters like um, assemble and, and find each other. And, and those, those apps disappeared. And, uh, you know, there've been other things going on like a Taiwan flag emoji disappeared. You know, <laughs> um, just silly things that you can tell something's, something's amok, right? So, uh, you know, that, that, that has happened with Apple. Uh, very disappointing, you know? <laughs> so I think most of us are or have been Apple shareholders at some point. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, that's a, that's a dilemma, but, but yeah, um, any company operating in China, there is that risk. And now with uh, the Olympics approaching with like China hosting the winter Olympics next year, like it's, it's, it seems like it's a, just all the more opportunity for tensions to boil between, uh, between the U S and the West and China too. Yeah, you know, I never actually never thought I would see this type of reaction to um, the Olympics. Uh, the, you know, people were talking about boycotting the Olympics in the human rights world for the longest time. And, you know, now it's mainstream. And I, I never thought I would see this happen. I mean, there are, you know, there's the Xinjiang situation, the Hong Kong situation, and that apparently wasn't enough. And it took, what it took was one person, Peng Shui, to say something about her own um, experience with a communist party official and 
you know, the post was disappeared, then she was disappeared. And, you know, that in itself, like she even said in her post, I know this is like, you know, coming up against like impossible situations, basically. And she said it much better than I did, like a, you know, bug against a, a rock or something. I don't know what she said, but it was very um, well put. And, um, and she actually, she did it. I mean, one person, she was the trigger, you know, it's kind of like in the stock market, there's always a trigger. Like we know something's going to happen, but there's always a trigger. And she was the trigger. And this is a perfect example of how one person can make a difference. I mean, she wasn't even posting in, you know, world forums. It was just on Chinese forum and she was just posting to a Chinese audience. And, you know, she, she has a platform because she is a famous tennis player, world champion, and the tennis uh, World Tennis Association came uh, behind her and backed her and, you know, other players like Serena Williams um, backed her. And, and, and that was like a snowball effect. And we, you know, as far as Wall Street, we've never seen this kind of courage um, out, of, out of any organization. And so um, to us, it was shocking. And I think for a lot of people, it was. And so at the same time, Ines Cantor, or now Ines Freedom, um, of the NBA started speaking out against China. And so two individuals um, in the backdrop of millions of Uyghurs and millions of Hong Kongers who came out on the streets, uh, two individuals ended up being the catalyst. And now, uh, I, I believe the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, Lithuania, um, now Switzerland, I guess, um, have all come out with a di di diplomatic boycott. Um, now you could argue diplomatic boycott isn't a lot. It's still just a diplomatic thing, but it's a statement. And um, that's more than I ever thought I would see. So, right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. This is kind of in your wheelhouse with, you know, like, the, um, I mean, the freedom index or human rights violations. Do you think there's going to be pressure on uh, Western companies to like not advertise or not have as big of a presence at the games? because of this now? I think companies that do advertise at the games are gonna be uh, dealing with blowback. Yeah. And we, I think we, I mean, we've already seen that, right? I mean, like, it's, it seems like, but you're right, like this Apple deal, like you spoke of, or, or apps disappearing from app stores, but it's always disappointing. Like you've seen, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, you've seen like big athletes like LeBron James make, <laughs> I guess, disappointing statements, you know, about like, the NBA's relationship with China when people yeah. are asking the NBA to speak out and, and things like that. But, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, like, it, is that pressure going to grow? Like, do you think we're at a, like an inflection point here? I mean, it's definitely something. Um, I think, um, I think the snowball has started. So yeah, I do think the pressure will actually grow. Um, and I'm very cynical about this because I, you know, we work on wall street, like wall street generally doesn't care about human rights um, generally. Our, our investors are different, obviously. <laughs> you guys are different. Um, but um, generally, we don't care about human rights. We don't, you know, we only care when it hits our wallets. And so this shareholder value destruction that occurred this year in China, I think got everyone's attention. And now people understand autocracy risk and possibly, you know, realize we've mispriced it. And so, yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of hypocrisy as well that people are just getting tired of, like with LeBron James, you know, same thing with ESG investing sometimes where basically, you know, you exclude like LeBron is like very vocal about causes in the US and that's very good. And I think NS Cantor would agree with him on all of those. He just, you know, NS just wishes that 
LeBron would be equally vocal about issues outside the US, you know, especially China. But when it comes to China, LeBron is silent or defensive and says some very, you know, nonsensical things. And so um, same thing with ESG, right? So ESG funds in emerging markets, especially Stark, because uh, most of these funds have something in the rule book that says we're not going to deviate more than 1% from the uh, non-ESG benchmark. So by by policy, they're greenwashing. And so in emerging markets, you have no alcohol, tobacco, uh, weapons, whatever, um, but you have 40% in, you know, in China and it's you know the country committing the genocide of our times, but that's totally fine. You know, So it's like very kind of hypocritical. And so I think uh, investors are waking up to that um, just like people in general are waking up to it in the sports world. Um, I don't know if it's hit Hollywood yet, but I do see kind of a sea change in sports and in uh, Wall Street, on Wall Street. Perth, you're, you're very passionate when you talk about these things. And I've heard you talk before about your, your upbringing and, and just like, uh, like you know, how you were born in China and then came to the U.S. Can you just speak to that if you have time and, and, yeah. and tell us how that shaped your, your worldview? Sure. So I was born in China, in Beijing. Um, and I stayed there until I was nine. My parents came, like one came when I was one and one came when I was four. So I was with my grandparents and I came when I was nine. And uh, after college, I went and lived in Hong Kong and traveled to the mainland. And I made local friends in Shanghai and Beijing. And I had a friend um, in Shanghai, uh, we called her Maggie. And she had, she was the same as me, like same age, just like all of my American friends in every way but she didn't exist on paper. Like there was no birth certificate, no school records, no hospital records. Um, she basically grew up on fake identities because she uh, was born the second child and her parents registered her brother for school and for existence. Uh, now she's one of the lucky ones. The one child policy in my generation in China changed the whole culture of my generation. And now it's three child policy. And you know, before they were you know, forcing people to have only one kid using very, intrusive, coercive measures. And now they are <laughs> forcing people to have more kids. So it's like, okay, central planning really didn't work in this case. Um, so, and because they're dealing with the worst demographic crisis in the world. And so that's when I realized, okay, freedom matters. Like these policies matter for a society and the growth of a market as well. Uh, because I saw the difference it made in my life and also in the markets in Hong Kong versus China versus um, US and so forth. So uh, when I came back and uh, worked at Fidelity as a financial advisor, um, I had clients who came from like Russia or Saudi Arabia. I was in the LA and Houston markets. So a lot of uh, immigrant clients and some of them told me, hey, I don't wanna invest in Russia because it's like funding terrorism. This is my Russian client, right? So these people had the same idea as me where we wanted our money to not fund terrorism, you know, to not fund autocracies. Um, so with emerging markets, investing is very difficult to do that. And that's, that eventually led to the creation of this product. Are there any other countries other than China that, um, you know, are very popular, trendy among investors or are weighted in other emerging market funds that, uh, also score very low on you know, human or economic freedoms? Yeah. So Russia and Saudi Arabia are typically in the top 10 of most emerging markets funds. Um, typically around 3% weight to each, which is not a small weight um, in the emerging markets universe. And so, so that they, you know, these are markets that have lots of political freedom issues. Um, we, we all know about Jamal Khashoggi, who 
got bone sawed basically in um, Saudi Arabian embassy in Turkey. Uh, so, you know, very poor, sometimes very poor women's rights and, uh, you know, Russia, there's all kinds of political freedom issues. Navalny is currently in jail. Lots of others who have come uh, across uh, Putin have been um, poisoned or <laughs> assassinated. I mean, so, so it's a very dire situation and these are very extreme kind of uh, e emerging market autocracy situations that most American investors would be shocked to, to kind of hear about things going on there. So I think a lot of the things that go on in these markets are so shocking to us that we just ignore it because it's like too much. And, um, and, and we shouldn't because it affects uh, the markets and it affects the societies and, and um, the impact that our dollars are making with our investments. Let's, uh, let's end on a high note, Perf. We talked so much about the <laughs> negative countries. Like what, what countries would like American investors be surprised that score so high on economic and personal freedoms? Yeah, so actually uh, Taiwan has increased dramatically in their freedom levels in the past 10 years. And it's just like a, it's almost looks like China GDP numbers basically. So um, so that has been a huge increase and in their, in their market, their stock market has reflected that. So this year, Taiwan's one of the best performing stock markets. Um, coming out of the recovery, Taiwan and South Korea, both very, very free emerging markets were um, some of the best performers. Uh, Poland with all its problems, is an ex-Soviet uh, Eastern European nation that has uh, fought against, uh, you know, big bully neighbor of Russia. You know, and they, they know how to come up against uh, autocracy, and they they like Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia, who are right now standing up with Taiwan. Um, so 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 they they are kind of they have been somewhat a shining star for freedom in, in Europe over the past. Um, you know, 10 years or so. Right now we see some declines in that, but that is reflected in our weightings. Um, but they've also been a very good performer this year. So, um, and, their, and their institutions are still pretty strong where um, they can democratically vote out um, anybody that is infringing on freedoms and that is happening. So, you know, I expect at some point that will be changed through voting. Um, so, so yeah, those are some of the countries that, that we rank highly, which is Taiwan, um, Poland, Chile also won, and, and South Korea. Perf Toll, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I'm Matthew Cochran with Max, Max Chatsko. We're Seven Investing. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.